Hi everyone, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, host of ASRM Today, and today's episode is a rebroadcast of one of our popular episodes from this past year. Now don't worry, we'll be back with new episodes soon. So until then, please enjoy this rebroadcast. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These podcasts are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. Hello to everyone. I am Dr. Jeffrey Hayes, your host for this episode of ASRM Today. In this episode, I am talking with Dr. Carl Hansen. Dr. Hansen is Professor and Chair, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the James A. Merrill Chair in Obstetrics and Gynecology, Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. I'm speaking with Dr. Hansen today about evidence-based treatments for couples with unexplained infertility. Dr. Hansen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. What are some of the challenges associated with determining optimal treatments for couples with unexplained infertility? Uh, so there are multiple problems associated with interpreting the literature as it relates to unexplained infertility. And in many cases, the studies that we would like to have just simply don't exist. In some cases, trials don't include untreated control groups or don't have groups of expectant management. In some cases, the trials have a crossover study design, which may be biased by order effects. There are also different definitions of unexplained infertility from one study to the next. And different treatment protocols in different countries also influences our ability to interpret the literature. Many studies are underpowered, and frequently there's an inadequate discussion of risks associated with treatment, such as multiple gestation pregnancies and ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And finally, the literature is also complicated, particularly in gonadotropin trials with different dosing of medications and cancellation criteria. How does the practice committee decide then on treatments and studies to include in a guideline such as this? Certainly it is important to include commonly utilized treatments while at the same time not confusing treatment with diagnosis. For example, hysterosalpingograms or HSGs may have a therapeutic benefit. However, it is primarily considered a diagnostic tool so the decision was made not to review this literature while we were putting together this guideline. We also had to make decisions as how to define unexplained infertility for the purpose of the review. For example, would we or would we not include early stage endometriosis and mild male factor infertility? Ultimately, we made the decision to include patients with these diagnoses as well under the broader umbrella of unexplained infertility but this is important to consider when we are looking at what studies to include for the review. So once these decisions were made, the papers were then reviewed and assessed as to quality. Is natural cycle IUI then an effective treatment for unexplained infertility? Generally speaking, no. The largest trial that we have that compared intrauterine inseminations or IUIs to expectant management did not show a statistically significant difference in live birth rate following six months of treatment. And this is an important take-home message from the practice committee guideline, and that is that IUI alone in natural cycles 
doesn't appear to improve pregnancy rates beyond expectant management and are not recommended. What about oral medications such as Clomid or Letrozole for ovarian stimulation with timed intercourse? This is a popular treatment amongst some practitioners, particularly general obstetricians and gynecologists. Unfortunately, this treatment is also no more effective than expectant management, and the data is quite clear here. While this treatment is very appropriate for couples wherein oligoovulation or anovulation is the primary underlying problem, or at least a component of the problem, it is ineffective in the setting of unexplained infertility. Again, there are several primary take-home messages from this practice committee document, and this is certainly one of them. A major concern here with the use of these treatments is not just the cost that goes into the treatment, which generally is minimal, as well as the risk, but the primary concern is the lost time treating couples with unexplained infertility with ineffective therapy. What treatment is recommended first line for unexplained infertility? The literature is, is clear here as well. Ovarian stimulation with oral medications, either clomiphene or letrozole, is clearly the first line treatment together with intrauterine inseminations. Well-designed randomized controlled trials demonstrate this treatment is more effective than expected management with multiple pregnancy rates that vary considerably between studies. And in the highest studies, these range between 10 and 12%, but in some studies are considerably lower. The differences between studies are likely influenced by patient population, dosing criteria, and cancellation criteria. But the best studies that we have clearly indicates that this is effective therapy. Is there evidence to suggest Clomid or Letrozole are better treatments combined with IUI? Currently, no. Some large retrospective studies have suggested multiple gestation pregnancy rates are lower with Letrozole than with Clomid. However, the largest RCTs demonstrate similar multiple gestation pregnancy rates. Again, differences between these studies are likely influenced based on protocols and patient populations. It is also important to note that currently letrozole is not FDA approved for fertility treatments. However, the best evidence that we have is that it is effective and safe and is a reasonable alternative to clomiphene together with intrauterine insemination. What about gonadotropins for ovarian stimulation, either with or without IUI? So these are some of the hardest studies to interpret for a variety of reasons. Outcomes in studies using gonadotropins for ovarian stimulation, either with or without IUI, are very mixed in outcomes. These studies are where we see the most difference in dosing protocols and cancellation criteria. Generally speaking, improvements in outcomes compared to oral medications for ovarian stimulation are only seen in studies wherein the multiple gestation pregnancy rate is significantly increased to an unacceptable level. Interestingly, Micah Hill's group recently published a meta-analysis in the same issue of fertility and sterility directly related to this topic, which we would have included in our practice committee guideline had it been available earlier. The findings in this study mirrored the conclusions of the practice committee document, wherein meaningful increases in pregnancy rates are only seen at higher gonadotropin doses or with lax cancellation criteria, such that the vast majority of these additional pregnancies are multiple gestation pregnancies. Additionally, the cost associated with these treatment cycles due to medication and monitoring is considerably greater than treatment cycles with oral medication. For all of these reasons, gonadotropins for ovarian stimulation is currently not recommended. 
What about IVF as a treatment for unexplained infertility? In vitro fertilization is clearly the most effective treatment for most kinds of infertility, and unexplained infertility is no exception. In many cases today, our infertility evaluation is honestly geared towards determining whether there are options other than IVF that we can offer patients that desire pregnancy. The practice committee document reviews multiple studies related to IVF as a treatment for unexplained infertility. In summary, particularly for women under 38 and with shorter duration of infertility, ovarian stimulation with oral medications for a course of treatment, which usually means three to four cycles, is recommended prior to IVF. It is also clear that the time to pregnancy and the cost per pregnancy is lower in couples that complete a course of ovarian stimulation, IUI, with oral medications followed by in vitro fertilization rather than an intervening course of treatment with gonadotropins with IUI. Additionally, for couples with a short duration of unexplained infertility, and by that I mean more than one year but less than 18 months, there may be a role for brief expectant management. The prediction model of Hanult may be useful in identifying appropriate patients, and this is a model that is commonly used in Europe. However, it is clear that patients don't prefer a strategy of expectant management. And so while this is a consideration, many patients choose to not pursue further expected management by the time they present for care and evaluation. What then are some areas for future exploration and or research? Well, certainly removing barriers to access for IVF is important. Clearly, it is the most effective treatment option, but it is currently inaccessible for many. And this not only influences our ability to care for our patients, it also inhibits our ability to design and conduct effective trials to determine best treatment strategies for couples with unexplained infertility. So that's certainly a primary area to focus on. Secondly, for ovarian stimulation with oral medications, is there a preferred agent? Currently, some of the studies would suggest that ovarian stimulation with letrozole is associated with a lower risk for a multiple gestation pregnancy. However, the largest randomized controlled trial that we have uh, did not show a difference in multiple pregnancy rates between letrozole and Clomid. So this remains an unanswered question, and studies like this are also complicated by dosing and different cancellation criteria between studies. Another important question to address is, are there adjuvants that may improve outcomes for ovarian stimulation with intrauterine insemination treatments? Success rates in these treatments has not changed for many, many years, while success with IVF has improved dramatically. So what are we doing collectively as researchers in order to try to improve outcomes in treatments that are less aggressive than in vitro fertilization? And finally, can we develop better models to predict multiple gestation pregnancy rates in ovarian stimulation IUI treatments? Many studies have been done in order to try to answer this question, uh, but currently we don't have a good way of determining who is and who is not at an increased risk of multiple gestation pregnancy during an ovarian stimulation intrauterine insemination treatment cycle. Dr. Hansen, again, thank you so much for taking time out to be with us today. Thank you, Dr. Hayes. It was a pleasure.